We're back. Another episode of the Defend and Confirm podcast. I'm Sean. I'm Russell. And we are continuing in our series on multiplying movements, a.k.a. church planting movements, a.k.a. disciple making movements. Uh, but we're putting all of that under the heading of multiplying movements. Yes. Yeah, so okay. people will most commonly recognize the phrase church planting. Probably. Movements. Yeah. And so if you haven't listened to part one, uh, what are church planting movements or part two, which is uh, really the first part of our history mm-hmm. section here, uh, the history of church planting movements, we would say, go back and listen to that. Watch that first kind of c- catch up from Charles Finney, up until what we're going to talk about today, and then come back and start right here. Yes. Okay. This is part two of our history. Yeah. Uh, We're going to start with a question. Mm. Are you ready? I'm ready. So what do Charles Finney and the revivalism that he stood for have to do with Andy Stanley, Rick Warren, and Bill Hybels? Mm. And then what do Andy Stanley, Rick Warren, and Bill Hybels, these are attractional model of ministry, seeker-sensitive guys, what do they have to do with church planting movements? So that's the question we're going to answer with this with this episode. That's right. So by the time you get to the end of this episode, you should be able to answer that question. Wow. Well, I'm excited. Let's get into it. So like last time, we are, we're not doing a deep dive into every angle of this history. We're going to kind of do like a stone skipping across the water approach. Yeah. And the first stop on this historical tour is a gentleman by the name of Jay Wascom Pickett. That's a fun name. Is, is he from Kentucky? <laughs> He may have been. Yeah. No, he's from Texas. Sorry. Oh, took me okay. a second. Something somewhere in the South. Yeah, all the yeah. same. Uh, so Pickett was born in 1890, uh, and his ministry ran through the early half of the 20th century. He's a Methodist, comes from a holiness background, uh, and that means his theology as, as a holiness guy is downstream from revivalism. So all the stuff that we talked about in our first part of, our, in our first episode on the history of this stuff, he's coming, what? 30 years after that, 40 years? He's the next generation. Next generation. Essentially. Okay. Uh, And so he's downstream of that. He's inherited a lot of their theological assumptions. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he served in India uh, during a time where there was actually a a great bit of controversy over something called mass movements. Mass movements. It feels like we're already starting to connect the dots, but go ahead. Keep going. So mass movements, it's a term that Protestant missionaries started using in the late 1800s in India. So you had missionaries over there seeing these large-scale conversions, uh, usually of people in a, in the lower castes of India. Okay. Uh, and and the, the word became very popular by the 1900s, 20th century. Gotcha. Um, the revivalists, the, the people who are in, in, I would say, Pickett's camp, yeah, put it that way. That's right. These guys thought it was great. They thought that these mass movements were spiritually genuine and good mm. and could be recreated. And, and they thought like that because they were downstream from Finney, yeah. who, who thought that a revival was something scientific, something yeah. that could be reverse engineered. And, and so you, if you bring that theology and you observe this sociological, possibly religious phenomenon taking place, you'll go, oh, it's just the same thing. It's just it's happening over there in India. Yeah, we just need to get the right ingredients together. Mm-hmm. And there you go. You got a revival. Yeah, there you go. So critics, and there were many, Uh, disagreed with Pickett. And these critics would say, hey, look, these mass cast-wide conversions, they they can't be genuine. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's probably a lot of rice Christians in these numbers. That's an epithet. It is. It's an old term. Yeah. Uh, That was a pejorative term used to describe uh, what was seen as people usually in impoverished third world countries who would profess to be Christian because of the 
economic, social, material benefits that if, came from the mission field. If I become a Christian, I'll have more rice. Exactly. Kind of a thing. Yeah. Gotcha. So Pickett was a defender of these mass movements. Again, he said they were a spiritually good thing. And a big part of that was that he saw conversion to the Christian faith as merely changing one's mind about a set of beliefs. Right. So here's a quote from Pickett that'll illustrate this well. Christian missionaries did not invent the mass movement. Much of the expansion of Mohammedanism, which we would these call days Islam. call Islam, yeah. uh, in India before the modern era of Christian missions took place through mass movement. That's a pretty striking quote. I mean, what he basically says is, we recognize the same kind of phenomenon happening in an entirely different religious context. And there it seems to be, I mean, I can't be true conversion because Islam doesn't really have the same doctrine of conversion, but we can take that and we can mold it and use it for our sake, for our evangelism efforts. Yeah, it, it shows that he understood mass conversion to be just the adoption of a new idea by a people group, yeah. rather than something supernatural taking place. That's right, um, but, which is, is not inconsistent for him because his doctrine of conversion. Yeah. Right? If it can happen on an individual, if all an individual needs to do is change his mind, right, have an intellectual change of heart, then it's it wouldn't, it wouldn't be that far of a stretch to go, well, an entire population could do that. That's right. right. Now look, just let's pause for a second. Note how similar this quote, this idea is to the modern multiplying movement practitioner, Steve Addison. Okay. Uh, I began to look at religious and secular history and see that whenever something needs to be changed, people come together and a movement emerges. I discovered that God is always raising up new movements. Nothing ever remains the same. In this same interview, he talks about examples of these movements. Uh, and one of them is sort of the student social justice movement of the 60s in academia. Okay. Uh, another one is the movement out of communism in the Eastern Bloc countries in, in Russia in the 90s. Okay. These are not spiritual things. These are yeah. sociological events. And he's putting them all into the same category as mass movements. Wow. Now, Pickett, again, as a defender of this stuff, he actually did a huge survey uh, in India. It, they interviewed thousands of uh, Indian Christians who were part of these movements. And his, he was basically attempting to prove that these were genuine, spiritually genuine conversions. His survey data actually did the opposite. Mm. Uh, basically, the effect of this type of ministry was rampant nominalism in oh, India. Wow. Now, there's some notable similarities between Pickett and, and modern multiplying movement practitioners in some other areas as well. And so what I've done, uh, just for the sake of brevity, is I've pulled some very important quotes from Pickett's mm, work, okay. and I've juxtaposed those with quotes from modern authors who are teaching DMM or CPM or something similar, and I just want you to listen to the, the comparison. All right, so this is where I'll take over. This is the easy stuff. I'll just read, and Russell, you just nod, and you offer, you, you, you interject with helpful commentary as we go. Okay. So the first, the first comparison, Pickett emphasized the importance of speed, in the mission field, going so far as to say <laughs> that slow growth indicates that something is wrong with the church. Okay, so here's Pickett saying that. Natural, rapid community or group movements to Christian discipleship are more likely to produce a strong, healthy church than are cautiously controlled processes of slow growth. Generally speaking, slow growth indicates something wrong with the quality of the life of the church. We're not critiquing today, not right? Critiquing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's just compare this to what David Garrison, author of yeah. Church Planting Movements, says. A church planting movement might see a new church start every three to four months. 
For this kind of multiplication, rapid reproduction must be built into the core values of each church being planted. Mm. Among the Kekechi people, if a church didn't reproduce itself after six months, it was considered an unhealthy church. Wow. And he says that praisingly. Yeah, so just just so our listeners and our viewers are clear, David Garrison, if they if they didn't if they didn't actually go back and watch some of the earlier stuff, is kind of like the godfather, the head honcho of the modern church planting movement. And you can see from the comparison of these two quotes that he's really just pulling from Pickett. That's right. Okay. All right. Uh, second, uh, Pickett also thought that the miraculous outpouring of the Spirit of God in Acts two should be normative. Uh, for the church and can be experienced anywhere today. A normative, help us out. What does that mean? Yeah, so rather than it being a unique redemptive event, kind of like the resurrection of Christ, right, that just happens once, it should be something that we expect to be happening all the time. So Pentecostals are Pentecostals because they think what happened at Pentecost is normative. That's right. So this is what Pickett says about about that. He says, Is it not reasonable to suppose that a church in which the Holy Spirit is at work in Pentecostal power would experience the rapid growth that took place in Jerusalem after Pentecost? Yeah, now compare that quote Mm -hmm. to a quote from uh, an unnamed author at beyond.org, which is a, a big hub of articles and resources for this stuff. Okay. Acts is the kingdom growth of the gospel accounts on spirit-empowered steroids. Pentecost was a game-changer in that regard. So far, I'm not really saying much, but go ahead. Luke describes how kingdom movements had become normal and viral over a 30-year span. Kingdom movements were not a passing phenomenon. So can you can you spell that out a little bit for us? Yeah, this is just a slightly less eloquent way of saying what Pickett said, which is that what we saw happen in Acts, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, this miraculous outpouring of the Spirit and this incredible short, quick growth of the church, that's something that should happen all the time yeah. and can happen all the time. Uh, and so it just, again, not critiquing in this episode, this is fundamentally not a Baptist view. This is a Pentecostal view, and this comes through revivalism. Yeah. Okay. Uh, number three, uh, like Finney, Pickett emphasized immediate, spontaneous baptism, and in doing so, he he shows that he conflates outward acts of obedience uh, as being equivalent to true conversion. Right. So, if you see somebody get baptized, you should just assume that conversion has taken place. Yes. Right. Uh, so, listen to Pickett on this. He says, in any case, the test of discipleship. When these 3,000 joined the church, seemed referring to the book of Acts, seems to have been receiving the word from the apostles, declaring their faith and repenting of their sins, not demonstrative proof of their conversion. And let's compare that to Jimmy Tam, who is at Fuller Theological Seminary, which is a location that will come back up as we yeah. get through this episode. The sixth barrier to multiplication is the extra-biblical requirements and unnecessary delay for baptism. The examples of Peter, Philip, and Paul in the book of Acts show that baptism was administered immediately after the hearers responded to the gospel message with repentance. Unfortunately, the common belief and practice among American churches are that candidates of baptism must be taught basic Christian doctrines before baptism. Mm. So we're not critiquing this here. Uh, obviously, Pickett and, and Jimmy Tam, though separated by 100, 150, 200 years, are teaching something very similar about baptism. How would we say, just briefly, that this breaks with what the Bible teaches? Yeah, well, with 
you know, the Bible doesn't necessarily prescribe a time between baptism. We see some things that are described in the Bible, but what you do see in the Bible is that baptism needs to be given to those that we have confidence are truly converted. And in some circumstances, uh, that could be something that you can be assured of very quickly. Uh, But the church very early on began to see that bringing people into the church too quickly led to a bunch of people going back out the back door just as quickly. It led to nominalism. It led to all kinds of discipline issues. So very early on in the life of the church, uh, as you study church history, you see the church goes, hmm, maybe we should slow this down. Maybe we should catechize these people. Maybe we should wait. Uh, And it was the practice in the church well up until the 17, really late 17, early 1800s, even in like medieval Roman Catholicism, uh, people wouldn't get baptized until much later in life. So uh, it's it's really a break, not just with Baptist tradition or anything like that. It's a break with 1800 years of church history. That's right. Yeah. Uh, All right. Four, the fourth and final uh, contrast here. So finally, Pickett emphasized that it was God's will that's a really important phrase, that it was God's will for rapid conversions of people groups to occur. So this is where we get the kind of mechanical view of God's work in conversion. God's done his part, so if we faithfully do our part, uh, we are guaranteed the results, right? Yes. Um, so here, here's a quote. To proclaim slow growth as the will of God is open to the gravest, notice the language here, right? Not like, oh, I could be right, you could be wrong. It's open to the gravest theological objections and cannot be reconciled with the central affirmation that Jesus made about God. So if, <laughs> if you believe that slow, steady growth is good, you are out of sync not only with the will of God, but also with the central affirmation that Jesus makes about God. That's right. That's a big deal. Uh, now, to be fair... You don't hear a lot of modern church planting movement, disciple making movement guys say things quite as explicitly as Pickett did here. Sure. But you see that same influence, and you actually hear them make statements that that are identical in meaning, uh, though though not consistently. Even. Yeah. Almost as if they recognize that that doesn't sound quite right. We shouldn't say that part <laughs> yeah. out loud. Uh, here's an example of C. Anderson, and again, we don't have her full name because a, a lot of these authors, a lot of these uh, leaders within multiplying movements, tend to use anonymity. Uh, for various reasons. Okay. Uh, She writes, God's heart burns to release incredible movements of passionate, obedient followers of Jesus, or Jesus followers. He has begun this, and he is accelerating his work around the world. There is no place, sphere of society, or people group where his plan laid out in Scripture for multiplying disciples will not work. Mm. So it's God's will, and if you follow the right steps and engage in the right way, you will see fruit. It, this is the burning desire of his heart. Uh, yeah, so one, one final thing on Pickett. He does something unique. Uh, he argues that people should be one to Christ, but encouraged to say in their social groups, in their families, and like in his experience in India, in their castes. Uh, and to pull people out of these is to uproot them from their culture and to prevent growth and conversion of people groups. So there's a sense in which we could agree with one angle of what he's trying to say there, right? So to follow Christ doesn't mean you have to leave everything you've ever known and ever loved and, you know, be uprooted from everything that you are culturally. Right. So so what is wrong with with, with this right here? Well, the, the most basic example is that Pickett did not encourage these Indians to leave the caste system. Mm. The caste system is a theological system of mm. Hinduism. Yeah. Uh, so he took that principle and ran with it to a point that it, it led to syncretism. 
Uh, it led to people who were professing Christ living pagan lifestyles and still celebrating pagan, pagan cultural and religious icons and, yeah. and events. And so there is a sense in which you're right. You, know, you don't become a Christian and leave behind everything from the life that you had because there are some culturally, you know, spiritually neutral things. Yeah. Uh, like in many instances, look in America, how you dress. Uh, the way that you uh, shake hands. And these, mm-hmm. are, these are not things that are embedded or pregnant with spiritual significance. Yeah. And yet he failed to recognize just how spiritually significant many of these cultural and social practices were and told them to keep doing, and encouraged them to stay in these networks and to continue to live in this way. It's easy to see how you would get to the insider movement from that, right? That's right. Uh, and then one more thing I would point out here. He says to, to pull people out of these is to uproot them from their culture and prevent growth and conversion of people groups. So his his main reason for objecting to this is less theological and more it's just going to shut down the speed. That's baby, right. Right. Like I, we're trying to put the NOS in effect. Right. We, yes. We're trying to go fast. <laughs> Insert. Uh, was that a Fast and Furious reference? No, it was um, a Talladega Nights reference. Okay. Uh, but you know we're trying to be first and not last, That's right? right? And uh, if you pull these people out of their culture. Uh, it's going to slow things down, right? That's right. Okay. So now pause. Mm -hmm. Let me just remind everyone what we're doing here. We're trying to draw a line or a series of lines from Finney and the revivalists and what they believed about conversion and and revivalism and all that bad stuff. We're trying to connect that all the way up to modern church planning movements. Okay. So we just went Finney and the revivalists to Pickett. Early 1900s. Yeah. Now we're about to make the next connection. Yeah, slight overlap there in the early 1900s okay. with uh, Donald McGavran. McGavran. Yeah. Take it away. Uh, this is the next stop on the tour bus, uh, Donald McGavran. In terms of how evangelicals came to understand both missions and the growth of, of local churches, even in the West, uh, McGavran was probably one of the most influential figures in the last hundred years. I've never heard of him. That's because you read better books. Okay. it's It reminds me of like Antonio Gramsci. Like most people don't know who Antonio Gramsci is. That doesn't mean he's not one of the most influential people in the history of the Western world from the last 200 years. That's right. Okay. When, when you go back to study a subject and all the people you've heard about on that subject all quote the same source, it's the same guy. Pretty significant. It's, this is basically who McGavern is for Christians today. Yeah. Uh, so he was a 20th century missiologist. Uh, he became a dean. Sorry, missiologist, uh, an expert in missy. Yes, and mess- <laughs> no, uh, missiness. An expert in missions, right? Somebody who studies missions. Yes, okay. he was an expert in missions in the 20th century, uh, became a dean at Fuller Theological Seminary. Told you that would come back up again. Yep. Uh, he was influenced by a lot of other guys. Uh, Roland Allen, if you've heard of him. John Mott, if you've oh, heard of him. Oh, that's Mr. and Mrs. Mott's boy. <laughs> Uh, if you know anything about missions in the twentieth century, in the twentieth century, these are these are key players. Okay. However, mm. Pickett was McGavern's primary source of inspiration in his work. Hey, I have a quote here that will reaffirm what you just said. All right, go shall for I it. read it? Go for it. There has come a book sent by God. Wow, and its name is Christian Mass Movements in India. And that was written by Pickett. Yeah, Pickett wrote this book uh, after conducting his survey and explaining what mass movements were and arguing for how genuine and good they are. So how strong is the connection between Pickett and McGavran? McGavran said, God sent this book from this man from on high to us to help us do a better job. Right. That's how clear it is. And, and I, I think it would be wrong to, to think that he meant that literally. Of course. But he was not far from, from that meaning. I mean, he, he absorbed everything that Pickett said, mm. built on it, 
uh, and embraced all of the theological assumptions that Pickett had developed uh, by applying this revivalism to the mission field. Yeah, it's almost like your average evangelical reform guy reading Desiring God, right? Like you just hear Piper and everything they say, right? Yeah. Same kind of thing. Yes. Okay. Uh, now, one thing he did a little differently, uh, Pickett actually didn't love the term mass movements, but he went with it because everybody was using it. Okay. Um, he argued for something closer to like people movements. McGavern just, he's he's got a clean slate. You know, he's not Pickett. So he's going to say from the start, we're calling these people movements. And he began mm -hmm. to describe the same exact thing Things that Pickett was talking about, but with this new label, gotcha. people movements. Gotcha. Um, as he developed these ideas further, along with some of his other colleagues at Fuller Seminary, like uh, Peter Wagner, basically they birthed what became known as the church growth movement. Okay. If you haven't heard of the church growth movement, this is one of those areas where McGavern had significant influence on the way Western pastors thought about the church for decades. So this is where we're about to get over into the Bill Hybels. I don't want to steal your thunder, but I'm just trying to help people track. Yeah. Right. Uh, we're going to get to the Bill Hybels, the Andy Stanleys, the Rick Warrens. And basically what, what you're about to explain to us is how we went from mass movements to church plant to church growth movements in America. Yeah. Basically what, you, what you're going to show us is that McGavran took picket stuff that was happening over in India and he said, hey, let's do that here in America. Yeah, and McGavern was active in missions in India as well. Okay. He went and studied there firsthand. Uh, he did exactly that. He took these principles that he developed studying these movements and, and uh, tried to apply them to the church in the United States and in the West. Uh, two aspects of the church growth movement that we we're going to talk about. This is the fruit of his efforts. Uh, one, a very mechanistic view of church growth. It feels like we've already covered that. It does. But it's just, a little different. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and and this is per, in particular because what what McGavern is doing is not just keeping a mechanistic view of conversion. Mm. That if we do this, 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 and this in the right order and the right ingredients together, God will necessarily convert people. Okay. We will necessarily see revival. Uh, he took it and dialed it in a little narrower and applied it specifically to the local church. Interesting. So like an anti-nine marks guy. <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> okay. Uh, the second principle that he developed that we want to talk about is the homogeneous unit principle. Mm. Homogeneous is a very big word that means... The kind of milk that you drink. Yes. I drink the homogeneous milk. <laughs> well, what does that mean? The the same. Yeah. So you yeah. have the fat and the cream and the water and the whey and the <laughs> yeah. and the stuff and the, yeah. and the jello. And then it all comes together. When you homogenize milk, you make it one substance. That's right. Uh, all of the parts are sort of infused until it is it is all one. Uh, he has a in this principle we'll see he's talking about that same concept but applied to church growth. So McGavern, like Charles Finney, like the revivalists who followed him, like Pickett, believed that applying the right principles in ministry would guarantee numerical growth. And in his particular view, was the church. You can make yeah. a church growth, a church grow, if you apply the right methods. And he believed that because he believed in certain uniform principles, almost like we believe in like the laws of nature, right? Gravity yes. and so on and so forth. He believed that there were certain spiritual principles that, uh, yeah, could always explain the differences between churches that grow and churches that don't. Yeah. Right? As stated positively, uh, positively, McGavern said that uh, growth follows where Christians show faithfulness in finding the lost. Uh, stated in the negative, he also says that um, a, a lack of growth should be associated with disobedience Yikes. of the church. I have um, we're not critiquing, not but critiquing. I have a couple places in the Bible I'd like to take you. Well, let's let's compare, like just like we did with Pickett. Yeah, let's compare what McGavern says here 
with what we see modern DMM, so disciple-making movement, yeah. and church-planting movement authors say. So, yeah. So David Watson, he says, stick with the process, there will be fruit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, maybe at greater length here, a guy named Jeff Sundell. Jeff, if you're listening and I'm not pronouncing your last name right, I'm sorry. Leave a it. comment on YouTube. Whenever we preach the gospel with God's humble heart of love in us, people come to Jesus. Whenever. Whenever. Yeah. Guaranteed. Steve Addison, it's like baking a cake. That's probably the most egregious way to say it. Uh, it's like baking a cake. You need all the ingredients in the right balance to pull it off. And if you know anything about baking, it's very different than cooking. Cooking is a dash of this. You let it cook for how long? Well, your grandma doesn't know how long. She just stirs the pot until well, it, it looks like it's right. ready. But a baker knows this is an exact science. You have to put this much salt, this much sugar, this much flour. And if you mess it up, you're going to mess up the whole cake, right? And yeah. so he's he's using an analogy from one area of science and applying it to missions as if it's another area of science. Yes. And we would say this, this general idea uh, is deeply concerning. Uh, this is not what the Bible teaches about spiritual growth. This is not how the Bible teaches us to measure success in ministry. Mm. Uh, and it, it completely misses the sovereignty of God and the way he works by pouring out his spirit in certain measures in some periods yeah. and, and not in other periods yeah. uh, that we would say is it's biblical. And to miss that is going to shipwreck your ministry. Yeah. Amen. So here's a good non-critique for you. Uh, Jesus in John chapter 3 the wind blows where it wishes. Yeah, if you want to know the context for that, go read your Bible. Yeah, okay. you'll see what we're talking about. Yeah. All right. So the second thing that McGavern emphasized with this was this homogeneous unit principle. Again, that's a fancy word that just basically means likeness. Yeah. Um, here's a quote. This is from McGavern. Okay. And this is probably the most succinctly he described this principle. You got to give credit to him for the way that he says it. He just yeah. he doesn't pull just any lays punches. it out there. Men like to become Christians without crossing racial, linguistic, or class barriers. Mm -hmm. The implication there is, don't ask them to do any of those things. Yeah, we need to make it as simple as possible for people to receive the gospel, which means, now, uh, again, there's a sense in which we could agree with that. Um, but what he means is that we need to contextualize it to their culture and demand as little as possible from them and appeal to their felt needs. Right. Not... Uh, removing unnecessary hindrances to the gospel. That's right. Okay. Which would be a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he's saying that you want to take any... So so 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, Paul says that the gospel appears to be foolishness to those who are perishing. And so what do you do to a, a dying world that rejects the gospel as the power of God to save? Well, if you're McGavern, you try and make the gospel look less foolish. Yeah, that's right. And that's the last thing that we want to do as ministers of the gospel. Paul says that's what makes the gospel powerful, is that it's wisdom from heaven and it's foolishness to the world. Yeah. And so what this what McGavern is doing here is, first, he's assuming there's a spiritual neutrality to many of these non-Christian societies. Right. So this is just like Pickett. Uh, he picked up right where Pickett left off. Uh, McGavern actually believed, particularly you know, working in India, that people don't understand their own religions. He just assumed mm. they were all naive. And, mm. so, and thus the barrier to following Jesus was primarily social, not spiritual. Okay. So if I have to leave my brothers and sisters and mother to follow Jesus, that's, that's asking way too much of a new convert. But you just quoted Jesus, though. I, I literally just quoted <laughs> Jesus. So I'm going to read a quote to you. Uh, this is actually a critique of McGavern's homogeneous unit principle. I know we're trying not to do too heavy of a critique here, but this was too good to pass up. Okay. Uh, so these authors summarizing McGavern's views say, 
Indian converts to Christianity should not be required to renounce their caste identity, but be allowed to maintain it alongside their newfound Christian faith. This missiology characterized by church growth principles, that's McGavern's stuff, uh, underestimates the diabolical nature of the caste system. Caste comes in a package with the Hindu worldview as a whole, and the theological and socio-ethnic components are intertwined. And it should be noted that the three authors of the study, based on one, one of them that I know personally, and the last name of the other two are, are all Indian. These are all Indian guys, yeah. yeah. And they're all Christians uh, who are uh, from Indian ethnic background. Yeah. And so the results of McGavern's efforts in India, just like Pickett, was rampant nominalism and syncretism. Mm. So let's compare that quote from, or that summary of McGavern's views to a quote that we actually we actually read this in the last episode, okay. but I just feel like we need to read it again because it's that unbelievable. Here it is. You ready? Yeah. While central elements of baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the five purposes are found in each of the churches, other elements have been contextualized. This is what we saw as the Cambodian church blended the seven deacons of Acts 6-5 with the communist notion of a central committee to produce a pastoral leadership team called the seven-member central committee. Something you could only, you only have a name like that in a communist uh, regime. In the same manner, the Muslim background believers of Jedidistan met on Friday morning, seated in a circle under the leadership of a pastor whom they called their imam. That quote hits a lot harder after what we've been talking about in this episode. Yeah, and let's remind our listeners, that's, again, David Garrison, yeah. who is really the godfather of the modern church planting movement. And he's speaking of these concessions to false religions in the mission field as if they are evidence of fruit, as if this is yeah. just a great strategy. So the connection we're drawing here is the homogeneity principle as espoused by McGavern, yes. picked up, popularized, championed by Garrison. Cultural neutrality was part yeah. of that. And gotcha. so this view that everything in these cultures is neutral is a uh, terrible mistake. Yeah. Uh, second, the principle of, of this homogeneity emphasized the need for sameness among Christians. So the church growth movement taught that it's never good for a saved individual, someone who professes faith in Christ, to, to come out of his family, out of his culture, or out of his social environment. Instead, like Pickett, they wanted groups to convert, mm. and they wanted them to convert together. Uh, his reason is that lone converts, just like Pickett, can't spread the gospel and therefore don't get the results that God has promised. Mm. So here's a quote from him, from McGavern. Individual conversions out of a people involve a terrific uprooting. In group conversions, the individuals do not lose their social life in changing their religion. So there's no need to really count a cost. That's right. Now compare that with David Watson. Who's an author of a popular DMM book. Okay. In our opinion, Satan is at work in these extraction methodologies. Satan encourages the use of extraction evangelism and discipleship strategies because these strategies do not take silos into serious account. Pause. Yeah, what's a silo? So extraction evangelism is him saying you save someone and bring them out of their culture, social, sure. family group. The silo he's talking about is just a term he uses to describe their family, social, and cultural group that gotcha. they're used to being in. Uh, and the result of this is the winning of one at the loss of the rest of the family, the community, or the entire silo. Yeah. So right. you can clearly hear the echoes of Pickett and McGavran now coming through David Watson, who is uh, one of the leaders of the disciple-making movement methodology. 
Gotcha. So now we're going to kind of come back to the attractional church. That's right. Okay, take it away. So the attractional church, the attractional model of ministry, sometimes called the seeker-sensitive model. Can you give me like a 20-second explanation of what that is? Yeah, it's it's our whole model of ministry is basically uh, built on trying to draw people into the church, right? Yeah. Hey, look at us. We're just like you. It's, there's not going to be too many hurdles. Come on in and, and let us give you our best pitch about Jesus and the gospel. You guys have all seen this, whether you realize it or not. Yeah. Uh, if you've seen a big mega church that plays popular music songs instead of hymns, uh, tries to water down the gospel to make it seem more culturally relevant and less uh, threatening to people who are lost in their sin. This is all what we mean when we say the attractional model. Right. Where does that come from? Well, turns out that it comes from the church growth movement. Mm. It comes from the teachings of Donald McGavern and by passing down Pickett and the revivalists like Finney. Uh, for example, Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church, yeah. uh, writes that God used the writings of Donald McGavern to sharpen his focus on the church that he would later come to plant. He also applauds McGavern for brilliantly challenging the conventional wisdom of his day about what made churches grow. Mm. Uh, what did guys like Warren and Bill Hybels do when they were reading McGavern and, and absorbing these ideas from Fuller Seminary? Uh, what are guys like Andy Stanley doing today even? Well, they are catering yeah. to a particular cultural and social group yeah. called Western Americans. Yeah. They're contextualizing the gospel so they can make it as easy and as non-threatening to the values and social standing of Americans, uh, giving them entertainment, which is what Westerners expect, yeah. giving them uh, beautiful material goods in the form of, of very decked out buildings yeah. with the best sound equipment and you know this, the freshest coffee, yeah. all things Westerners expect. Uh, and they're putting these churches into small groups, these 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 people who affinity-based groups, affinity-based small groups, where you have your young adults and your singles and your empty nesters and your college-age kids, uh, and they're doing that to try and keep as homogenous as possible these interactions and these relationships within the church. Uh, basically, what they have is a poor understanding of conversion. Mm -hmm. uh, they've abandoned any idea that the New Testament tells us how a church should function and what right. a church should look like. And they've exchanged it for this Western model that treats the church like a branded business, yeah. which is what Westerners expect. Uh, the pastor's more like a CEO, which is what Westerners expect. And their primary fruit is nominalism. Mm, just like in India so many moons ago. Just like Pickett, just yeah. like McGavern. Just like, just like modern church Just like, movements. exactly right. And yeah. so what's so ironic here, the, this very model of ministry known as attractionalism, which is just taking all the church growth stuff and applying it to modern Americans, that in general, church planting movement guys, disciple making movement guys, house church guys, movement practitioners, as they call themselves, they reject this as poison in evangelicalism. Many of them actually seek and recruit people to join their multiplication movements from people who are essentially discontent with the seeker-sensitive, attractional church model. Mm. Um, they see this as an utter failure, correctly. Yeah. They see it as a failure of the church to thrive, to make disciples, to honor God. Uh, but what they fail to recognize is that it's the same philosophy of ministry just, that they're doing, yeah. just applied in their hometown. Wow. Uh, about 20 years after the church growth movement stuff really took off, David Garrison enters the scene. We've quoted him already. His first pamphlet where he outlined church planting movements, something new under the sun. Bold uh, move. Was followed by his book, Church Planting Movements. Um, he actually credits Donald McGavern as well. 
as one of his influence. Yeah. Um, so as we see, the modern multiplying movement guys, Garrison, Watson, Steve Addison, they're repackaging bad ideas that are really even bad contemporary ideas from the church growth movement. Uh, and they're claiming that they're doing something new and revolutionary, re- revolutionary excuse me, uh, when in actuality, these are just the same bad ideas yeah. that, that are being applied in the States. Uh, hey, let's let's just review, because this has been a lot. Yeah, it is it's, a lot. It's, it's a lot. So let's just do a quick 10,000-foot review of what we basically said in this episode. Beginning with Finney and, and others, but in the revivalistic time in the late 17, early 1800s, we see a mechanistic view, a scientific view of conversion. Then we see that picked up by... Pickett. Pickett. And, and what does he do with that? He takes it to India and starts to study these uh, these mass movements of people, uh, largely through Pentecostal missionaries yeah. like him, uh, who are seeing whole castes of people come to Christ. Yeah. He defends this as spiritually good. He emphasizes speed and uh, rapid baptism. He emphasizes getting things right equals growth mm-hmm. and says that if you're not growing, you're probably in disobedience. Uh, a lot of things that we would recognize as unbiblical. So then a guy named McGavran comes along and uh, picks up what Pickett did and says so explicitly, right? Yeah. Like, thanks, thanks, Pickett, right? Thanks, I'll your, take the ball. Your book is from God. Right, I'll uh, take it. They, run their generation it. overlaps slightly, but yeah, yeah he, he continues in India after Pickett. Yeah, that's right. Takes these ideas and refines them a little, gives us the homogeneous unit principle, uh, focuses on local church growth and brings them back to the United States. He yeah. goes to Fuller. He gets everybody like Kraft and Wagner on board with him at Fuller, and they produce the church growth movement. Yeah, and that that results in what we see in guys like Andy Stanley, Bill Hybels, Rick Warren. And then that, ironically, ends up going back overseas after some time in what we now know of as multiplying movements, disciple-making movements, church planting movements. And it's touted as something revolutionary. But it is actually nothing it's new. It's nothing new. Yeah. Uh, so, and what's what's really, and one thing I just want to drive home, um, if you talk to anybody in, who does church planting movements or disciple making movements, or if you've read the books uh, that talk about this stuff, when you see that in the mission field, they're going to emphasize the New Testament doesn't really tell us how to structure a church. Mm. You don't need to be removed from your culture or social groups. In fact, you should stay there. Um, we're going to contextualize the gospel so that it's more familiar to you, that so we so we make it easy for mm-hmm. you and and deal with your felt needs. And then when they come back home to the United States and they look at the attractional church and they say, this is messed up. We need to do this here. We're going to do small house churches. What are they doing? They're just doing the exact same thing that they rejected. Well, exactly. So yeah. what they're saying there is we're going to ask Americans who culturally want big buildings well-paid preachers, entertainment, smoke machines, uh, no discipleship, just easy Christianity. They want that. Well, here in the United States, they actually contradict their own methodology by trying to pull people into these kind of awkward house churches that is very counterintuitive for an American. And they'll admit, like, you know, I've talked to guys who do this and they say, yeah, most people think I'm in a cult because this is not comfortable or normal for American Christians. So they actually, they've recognized the failure of their own ideas in the West and so they're contradicting that in the yeah. West, whereas they continue to export these bad ideas in the mission field. That's incredible. Uh, so speaking of bad ideas, um, we will begin our critique next episode. Is that right? I don't think I follow your sequitur. Is it a bad idea for us to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, speaking of their bad ideas, we, uh, we are we going to begin the critique next episode? Yes. From here, we are going to actually dive into a theological critique of some of these specific ideas. Okay. Uh, and then we're, we're probably going to do an episode on some of the objections we've gotten. So we have had a number of people write uh, and say, hey, hey, you've got it all wrong. I actually met with a brother locally who's heavy into this stuff and uh, we had an interesting discussion. I'm going to bring some of his uh, objections to the episode mm. and talk through some of that. Wow. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, guys, please be pay- praying for us as we continue to do this. Be praying for Russell, uh, for his family, for Catherine. Those of you who know what's going on there, they could use all the prayer support uh, in the world. And uh, just pray for us spiritually. Pray that the Lord would, pr- would protect us and keep us and that he would continue continue to use us in this platform that he's given us. Amen. Our signing off, I'm Sean. I'm Russell. Thank you for listening.